Do you feel weary? Our Bible reading tonight promises a word that sustains the weary. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If you're tired, if you're weary. Let's pray together and we'll ask for God's help. Our Lord God Almighty, we pray to you this precious moment. We have this evening together and would you give us that word we pray that sustains the weary. Open our eyes, we pray, and show us that wonderful thing in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I went to pick my children up from school not long ago, last month, I think, and the head teacher, who I know a little bit, said to me, oh, you look tired. <laughs> Which is a horrible thing to be told, isn't it, really? I mean, it's just one notch, one notch above, uh, you look terrible. That's like the lowest of the low, and you look tired. Mm, it's still, it's still not a compliment. Truth is, uh, I did look tired, and uh, I, do, I do frequently look tired, because I have lots of work to do, and lots goes on in life. But I don't mind admitting it. And I know the word that sustains the weary. And it's that that I would love to talk to you about in Isaiah chapter 50, mainly this evening. Life is very tiring, isn't it? Very wearying. Maybe you feel weary from your job and the responsibilities placed on you. You know that feeling every weekday, fresh responsibility, fresh pressure, got to make the right decisions. Maybe you feel weary from your routine and you feel like a hamster in a wheel. You know that feeling of going to bed and thinking, where on earth did today go? Where did that week, that month, that year, that decade go? Maybe you feel weary from your studies, and as you're handed more bits of paper, more documents, more things to read, you think, oh, not another one. Maybe you're weary of your sin, of falling into the same habits and addictions over and over again, you know, reaching for the same things time and time again and hating yourself for it. I'm so tired of this, but I do it anyway. Maybe you're weary of waiting because you're waiting for something that someone promised you a long time ago. You're waiting for somebody to change and it hasn't happened yet. Maybe you're weary of life and you're ready to give up today. I spoke to someone in London not long ago. They said, I'm ready to give up. Maybe you feel bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this evening and you came in here wagging your tail. Uh, well, if, if it's you, then there is probably someone sitting very close to you who is bone-weary. So maybe... You need the word that will sustain the weary for their sake. Tim and the team here gave me the opportunity to preach a one-off sermon. I understand you're between series in your evening service. And uh, uh, I said, can I preach Isaiah 50, please? Because that really filled me recently. And they said, yes, go for it. So here we are, Isaiah chapter 50. I've been fascinated by it for months now, ever since at our church in London. I was given the chance to preach, not actually on Isaiah 50, but on Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Did you hear it? It's this short verse. It actually forms a, a crux, a turning point in Luke's gospel because Jesus turns around, literally sort of turns around and faces towards Jerusalem for the first time in the narrative. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it does seem, most commentators and theologians agree, th this is drawing this is a rich seam that Luke is drawing when he says he set his face towards Jerusalem he's invoking the famous prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50 which Luke indeed Jesus indeed the apostles in the early church would have known very well he set his face towards Jerusalem that means he was determined to get there 
Have you ever wondered what Jesus' face looks like? I have. In fact, I've become a little bit obsessed by it, which I don't think is weird. I think it's, I think it's quite godly, because one day we will see him face to face, won't we? It's one of the great promises of the Bible. They will be his people. He will be their God. And Jesus will be there as a human being forever and ever, and we will see his face. You know, when someone's pregnant and they go for scans and you see those black and white images of the ultrasound... That's quite exciting because the first time you see a 2D image of the baby, but you still don't know their face. You don't really know their face even until they're born. One of my kids had a 3D scan. It was really cool, amazing technology. But even then, I didn't really know his face until he was born. And then once you've seen a person's face, once you've seen a baby's face, you can never unsee that. You always know what they look like. What they look like. It's amazing. And one day you and I will see Jesus face to face and we will know what he looks like, and we will never unsee it, and we will never want to, and forever after, that will be his face. I think it's wonderful for the time being that we don't know what he looks like. I mean, we don't know if he was black or white or olive-skinned. We, we don't know hardly anything about his physical appearance. But one thing we do know is that Isaiah chapter 50, uh, he set his face like flint, and this is what Luke is drawing on when he set his face towards Jerusalem. So we know he had this determined face. Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And I want you to gaze in wonder at that face as much as we can this evening, even though it's like we're just looking at an ultrasound scan at the moment. And I want you to be sustained by his determination. Sustained by it. I think the ESV that you have in your pews gets it just right. He set his face towards Jerusalem. Or as Isaiah 50 verse 7 says, he set his face like a flint. Flint. It's, it's just hard. It's, it's, there's a reason that, you know, they started making axes out of it whenever they realized that, that was their technological advantage. It's the hardest thing they had. It's tough. In Deuteronomy, it makes a passing reference to flint, which is as hard as a horse's hoof. It's, just, it's hard. So if Jesus has a face like flint, it's, it's steely, as we would say. I flew here to Belfast from London Stansted, and there was one point in the queue at Stansted, I thought, this will never end. You know, this queue is so long. Am I ever going to catch my plane? But I had a face like flint. I was, I was, I'm, I've got this far. I'm getting to Belfast. So, you know, when you're like that, you're going to go on a holiday, I will get there. And uh, Jesus had a face like flint towards Jerusalem. Eleven times this phrase comes up in the Old Testament. It's an idiom to set your face towards something. But the gospel that, that we believe is not a call for you to set your face towards heaven. I will make it. I will get there. I mean, that's, that's not what I believe. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ who set his face like flint. And he said, I will get there for their sake. There's a song we sing at Christmas, at Christmas time in my house. It, it has a line in it that says, the weary world rejoices. And uh, I, want, I want this weary world to rejoice a little bit more this evening as we, as we gaze at Jesus' face. You may know that there are four servant songs in Isaiah chapters 42 to 53. They've got four songs. I think of it a bit like an EP. You know, like a short music album. So Isaiah kind of released these four songs as a short album, and they are beautiful. They're all about this mysterious servant figure. And there's a big prophecy involved in them. It, 
it's like this, really. The whole hope of the Old Testament is reduced down. By the time you get to Isaiah, late in the Old Testament, it's like it's reduced down to one figure. They're pinning all their hopes on one person. And Isaiah says, yeah, he's going to be a servant. That's not my phone, is it? No? Okay, that's, that's the important thing. Okay, I, w- I want to show you three things, um, and they're mainly Isaiah chapter 50 with reference to Luke 9, okay? We'll do what and when and why. Firstly, what Jesus was determined to do. Isaiah 50 tells us he was determined, though he knew he would be rejected, and Luke 9:51 adds that he was determined to enter Jerusalem. Okay, so a combination of rejection and Jerusalem, and Jesus put them together. I need a little help from you, okay? So if you were here this morning, I need a bit from you here. Um, so if you have Isaiah 50, I'm going to ask you for body parts, okay? There are six different human body parts mentioned in our passage, and I'm going to read it, and then I'll give you an opportunity. We'll try and get all six together, okay? Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know I shall not be put to shame. Anybody willing to start us off a body part that you noticed? A tongue, thank you. That is in verse four. Ears, yes, thank you very much. That, you get a couple of mentions of ears in verses four and five. Cheeks, yeah, in verse six, is it? Face in verses six and seven, I think, yeah, thank you. Did someone say back? Yes, thank you. You get the back in verse 6. One more. Beard in verse 6. Spoken by a bearded man. Very good. Yeah. So it's, it's very bodily. You get the idea? But this is an out-and-out biblical prophecy. You can, you can almost touch it and feel it. It was written 700 years before Jesus lived. I was reading Isaiah with someone who, who's not yet a Christian recently, but he's, man, he is so interested in Jesus. And he was amazed. He said, are you telling me that the, the build-up to Jesus goes back 700 years? I said, oh, yeah, and more. Like, you know, you could, you could go back 1,300 years, and we'd, we, I could take you back further. So he said, wow, that's amazing. And they were talking about Jesus. I said, yeah. In Luke chapter 22, in the New Testament, it says that the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. In Matthew chapter 26, it says, Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. In Mark chapter 15, it says, Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. I wonder if you can feel the rejection of Jesus amongst the spit and the knuckles. When I went to theological college, I spent three years learning Greek. And that sounds a bit dull, doesn't it? But the most moving hour I ever spent was when they asked us to translate the gospel account of Jesus' arrest and trial. And you're sweating hard to translate these verbs. I remember going through, what does that verb mean? 
looking it up and realizing, oh, that's where they struck him. What does that next verb mean? Oh, that means to spit upon somebody. Oh, what does that verb mean? Oh, that means to mock somebody. Again and again, wave after wave. But Isaiah was prophesying this servant figure who would get treated in that way. I know this isn't written in the future tense. You know, it says, it's like it was happening in Isaiah's day, isn't it? The prophets often use something called the prophetic perfect. It was a way of speaking in the past tense. But with such certainty, it was as if something had already come true. This has already happened. It's as good as done. A modern example might be um, if, let's say, who, who was alive 700 years ago? Was that sort of Geoffrey Chaucer? I'm not very good at literature, but a, a, a writer writing English 700 years ago, let's say he made a prophecy and he said, one has come who will play with a ball at his feet and he will be long-haired and hail from Belfast and he will go to Manchester and win league titles and have an airport named after him. And, and you would know, I think, that that is George Best, right? Did I get that right? Okay. And that, that, that is the force of what Isaiah is doing. 700 years later, there will be one who will come and behave in this way. But of course, when Jesus completes this prophecy, it's not glory for him, it's rejection. When he sets his face like a flint, he's saying, I know this is going to be tough and I'm going to do it anyway. When he goes to Jerusalem, he knows it's going to involve rejection, physical harm, not riding in, into a a capital city on a golden carriage. I mean, the best it got for him was a donkey. So that is what Jesus was determined to do. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Secondly, let's look at when he was determined to do it. Remember what Luke 9.51 says? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When the days drew near. There was a time, a set time for all this to come true. The phrase could literally be translated, when the days of his being taken up were to be fulfilled. Luke is saying, Luke, one of the four gospel writers, there was a time that this had to happen. And that time, of course, was about the year 33 AD. Jesus was traveling south at Passover time towards Jerusalem. I don't know about you, I find that jobs don't tend to get done unless they have a deadline. In my house, there's, there's always DIY to be done, but it's, it's very easy just to put it off. Oh, yeah, I'll fix that thing when I have to. But it's different. If, if Sarah says to me, Pete, do you remember that your mum is coming to visit next weekend and we should really sort out the spare room? I say, oh, yes, I should make that habitable for my own mother. So a deadline helps, doesn't it? Maybe you know that in your own experience. Surely part of the reason Jesus' face was set like flint was because the time of fulfillment had come. Easter was nearly upon him. The Passover feast, the great deadline of his life, which he'd been building up to. Isn't that amazing? God Almighty, become incarnate, and then now moving through space and time towards his own execution. The time of fulfillment has come. So, there's a what, and there's a when. Let's look at the why, finally. Why was Jesus determined to do it? I see two reasons here in Isaiah 50. A, reason A, the help 
Reason B, the weary. So um, just a moment on each of them. Firstly, he was determined to do it because reason A, the help the sovereign Lord was going to, to give him. It says in verse 4, the Lord God has given me. It says in verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear. It says in verse 7, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. And then in verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Four times, do you see it? The Lord God is doing something here. Do you detect the partnership between the Father and the Son? Sometimes this is called the pact of salvation. It was made in eternity past when the Father and the Son said, hey, do you know what? We're going to go to earth. We're going to achieve salvation. We're going to purchase a load of sinners for ourselves. We're going to invite them to come to us. The sovereign Lord was going to help him. That's the first reason. Jesus knew the help he was going to get. But the second reason, reason B, he's doing it for the weary. He was willing to do it to sustain the weary. And this is important. It's the reason given. In verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And the whole second half of Isaiah is about comfort, comfort. It's about speaking tenderly to God's people who are weary from exile. And this little line fits right in with that passion of God's. He wants them to know the word that will sustain the weary. And my friends, brothers and sisters, the great news is this is still the Lord's passion. He still wants to sustain the weary. It hasn't come untrue just because it's really, really old. 2,700 years have passed, but he still wants you to know the word that sustains the weary. He wants to sustain you who are weary of being in exile and long for glory. He wants to sustain you who are sick of sin and want to come back to him. He wants to sustain you who are trying to do the right thing in the face of opposition. He wants to sustain you who have reached the end of your tether and you can't see a way out. He didn't create you and put you in this place to leave you hanging. You know, that would be like some kind of cosmic high five, wouldn't it? Like, you know, when someone gives you a high five and it didn't get completed. That's supposed to be completed. And the Lord God says, I'm going to give you this, the word that sustains the weary. And we're supposed to receive it with faith. Jesus knows the word that will sustain the weary. I thought of this not long ago. I'm, I'm a history geek and I, I, I live in London, so there's a lot to do. There's a lot to see. And there's this amazing place called the Churchill War Rooms. Anybody ever been there? few of you. It is this innocuous looking staircase in uh, London near Whitehall and honestly it just, it just goes down underground it says the Churchill War Rooms and you've got to know what's down there and uh, I've been meaning to go for years and eventually I got, I was like a kid in a candy shop because there in this subterranean set of rooms full of pipes and switches it looks like a big basement is where Churchill and lots of the war effort fought against the Nazis in the Second World War. And you go from room to room, and there's telephone rooms, and there's telegram rooms, and there's a canteen, and there's desks for secretaries, and there's this map room where, you know, they literally got the pushers with the counters across the map of Europe. And there's all sorts of things. And then you get to Churchill's bedroom near the end. And he had a bedroom down there, Lord though he was. And it's got a single bed with his quilt still on it. There's a little desk where he could get some work done. And apparently he spent lots of the war down there. He wanted to be close to the action. And he, he wanted to be able to be within easy reach of everyone he needed to be with. And there was a bed because he took a nap every afternoon, apparently. Now, I know Churchill wasn't a perfect man, but I think if I was typing away on my typewriter 
in the thick of the Second World War, thinking, are we ever going to beat these people? Are we ever going to fight back this great tide that's come against us? And then Churchill shuffled in, leaning on a stick, smoking a massive cigar, being Churchill, you know, just beating, being flint-faced and determined. I think I would have gone, oh, yeah, we probably will, actually. Yeah, we, I think we're going to make it. Because there's this guy, and he hasn't given up yet. And you know, the, the gospel puts in front of you one much better than Churchill. I mean, he's gone and died, and he's cold in his grave, but Jesus Christ is alive and well and as determined as ever. And I think I'm going to make it. I mean, if, if Jesus is determined to get me there, I think you're going to make it. God's invitation to you today, my friends, is to be sustained not by your own determination and your own reserves, but by his. Maybe you're sniffing around at the edges of faith and Christianity. Can I encourage you to focus in on Jesus? Like I said, the Old Testament reduced all the hope and expectation of all God's people down to one man, and it was happy to leave it there. I've been running a little group at my church called Seeking Jesus, and we have this little WhatsApp group and little Bible study with three other men, and we just read about Jesus together. They're all sufficiently weary in life and interested in Christ. That's exactly what they want. You could always set one up here if, if you or others wanted to know about Jesus. Maybe you're involved in ministry at church or elsewhere and you are tired, you are weary. Can I encourage you to focus in on Jesus? Church has to be about him. Ministry has to be about him. Life has to be about him. Why not, why not find something this week that stirs your heart? You know, some song, some Bible verse, some piece of art, some person, and if you can, Put them on your wall. You can't put a person on your wall, can you? But you know, get them in your life and put them somewhere that, where they can inspire you every day this week. Maybe you've given something up for Jesus and at the moment it feels heavy and it pulls at your heart and you think, that thing I gave up for God, that was costly. I wish I could have that back. Remember that Jesus gave up more for you. You know, there's a way of just pining for the thing that you gave up. Oh, I said, that was a big sacrifice. I can't believe I did that. But alleluia, what a, what a greater thought to think, that thing I gave up is not a patch on the stuff that Jesus gave up for me. What a savior. Next time I'm missing that vice, I'm going to think of all the stuff that he gave up for me instead, how determined he was. Next time I'm undetermined, I'm going to think about his determination and his flint face. How good it will be one day to see that flint face determination face to face much better to have got to that day by staying pure. Maybe you're bored by Jesus. If you're bored by Jesus, then I see that the longer I go on, the more I think, wow, I just haven't understood. I just want to look and look. I want, I want more of him because he's not boring. He's amazing. There's that phrase, isn't there? The, uh, the face that launched a thousand ships. And uh, I had to look that one up. I didn't know who it referred to. Apparently, Helen of Troy, she was so beautiful that she, her face launched a thousand ships, as in warships. People just went to war over her because they were fighting over her beauty. Well, that's nothing. Jesus' face launched a thousand truces. It restored a million marriages. It transformed a billion lives. If I'm bored by Jesus today, then I want to ask God, show me your face again. Maybe you've been let down by people. Well, I want you to know that Jesus never lets you down. His determination never wavers. His resolve is never in question. His determination is absolutely unparalleled. 
The rest of the world may have a nose made out of wax that they change on a whim, but Jesus has a face like flint and a will of iron that he won't let you down. You could let bitterness towards another person destroy you because they're so changeable. Or you could let amazement at Jesus Christ invigorate you because he's so good. Maybe you've just given up on work, on family, on church, or on life. Well, Jesus hasn't given up on you. He hasn't, because you're still here, aren't you? Don't give up, because he did all of this for you. He was determined. You are part of the greatest love story the world has ever known. You have purpose, you have meaning, you are valuable. Not because you're determined and you summon up all those phrases for yourself. I am important, because Jesus in his determination bestows them upon you. Maybe you've got energy today and you're thinking, why is he going on about being so tired? (laughs) Middle-aged man. (laughs) Well, look, now you know the word that sustains the weary. So would you go and tell some other people about it? Because the weary world needs to rejoice. Jesus is the word that sustains the weary. I had the wonderful privilege in March. I'll finish with this. I had the wonderful privilege in March. I traveled to Yorkshire to see a friend of mine who's planting a church there. And there's this amazing cafe in a, a village called Easingwold and I met the cafe owners, um, husband and wife, and the wife is, um, she's ill, she's incurably ill, but my goodness, she's got a big smile. And uh, I spoke to her, I said, you're, you're ill, you must be tired and weary. She said, oh, there's all that going on my, on my body, but you know what, I'd live for Monday mornings. I love Monday mornings, because I get to serve people coffee, I get to welcome them to my cafe, and then I get to be cheerful towards them. And sometimes, often, she says, what they say is, why are you so happy then? And, and I say, she says, do you really want to know? And she says, sometimes they say yes. And I get to say, I'm all about Christ. And that's amazing. I live for those kind of moments. And that's it. She's got it. The word that sustains the weary. All around the world, people are weary and beleaguered and depressed. But we have the word that all creation is groaning to hear. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And at that word the weary world rejoices. At the moment, rejoicing a little bit, and one day we'll see the full extent of creation's joy. Can't wait for that day. Let's pray together. I'll give you a moment, and maybe, maybe the Lord, the Holy Spirit is laying something on your heart, something to do, something to recover, something to encourage someone else with. I'll give you a moment to speak to the Lord about that and and then I'll lead us in a prayer. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Lord Jesus Christ, we can't see you yet. We long for the day when we can see your face, but we, 
I feel I'm looking at a scan, Lord, and I love it. I love to hear of your face, your determination, the flintiness with which you went to the cross, with which you suffered all those fists, knuckles, kicks, so much scorn for us. We praise you, Lord, and we pray that our our weary hearts and our weary world would know a bit more of you. Pray that we'd, we'd leave here rejoicing. And we pray we'd be sustained by your determination through this evening, into next week, and on in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.